This is the Reading Instruction Show. I'm your host, as always, Dr. Andy Johnson. The title of today's podcast is called Endings, Happiness, and Love. So this is a story about endings, and I have no idea why I'm writing this. I've got lots of other stuff to do, but it's niggling in my unconscious. It sits there like a rock in my shoe. And again, I have no idea why I'm writing this one. And maybe by writing it, I'll figure it out. Usually morals and lessons in stories come after the story has been told. Here, here in today's story, the lesson's up front. And here's the lesson. I used to think the world existed to make me happy. I looked for happiness and wondered why I couldn't find it. Eventually, I learned that I exist to make others happy. And in so doing, I discovered that happiness had been there all the time waiting for me. Now I wonder how I could have been so blind back then. Let's talk about endings. Every song has its beginning where the notes begin to plinkety-plink into the air. And every song has its ending, where the music stops and silence begins. And so must all things. We must have our endings. Pronounce points of termination. A cessation, a finale, a conclusion, without which we are left unsatisfied. We feel the weight of unending silence left hovering in space, going on and on and on. We have our various ending ceremonies. We look at dead people and say nice things about them. We wear choir robes and funny flat hats as we sit in stuffy gymnasiums, listening to speakers yammer on and on and on. We have final exams and divorces and last days and retirement parties and final acts and epilogues and credits that roll over the screen. There is the Alpha and there is the Omega, Genesis and the Apocalypse. There was the Big Bang and there is the Great Amen when the universe will someday collapse in upon itself. 1988 it was deafening, the roaring silence that greeted me when I came home that first night. I had pushed her away a woman who loved me and whom I loved but didn't know it. She made me happy, but then she didn't, so I pushed her away, and so she was gone. I came home from work. Her little shoes weren't in the closet where they had always been. Her things weren't in the kitchen. Her pictures were gone. She wasn't there but the smell of her lingered faintly in the air. I was alone. Things are, and then they're not. That's the way of it. Even though I knew it was coming, I thought I wanted it to come. I made it come. Our ending wasn't complete. It was the 80s, a different time. My good Christian friends didn't want to talk about it, you see. And my parents didn't want to talk about it, you see. 
To them, we had never had the right kind of beginning. The kind where a professional preacher man sprinkles some words on you, and then people go to a dance and get drunk. So they never acknowledged our beginning, our middle, or our end. An incomplete end, something not to talk about. So I didn't. The 80s, such a different time back then. The students in my class today wouldn't understand. My parents, like most parents of that time, grew up in the 40s and early 50s. They got married as soon as they possibly could. I'm guessing a lot of young people of the time got married early because back then you couldn't have sex until you were married. And they were all eager to get in on the party. But there were no getting in on parties back then until you walked out of the church with rice in your hair. And those were the rules. So people did. They got married. You get married and then that's it. Marriage was an integral part of the culture in the small rural community of Grandsburg, Wisconsin, where I grew up and my parents grew up and my grandparents grew up and my great-grandparents grew up. You graduated from high school, went into some branch of the service, came home, got a job, got married, and went to church every Sunday for the rest of your life. That's it. For women, you graduated from high school, got a job as you waited for your fiancé to come home from the service, got married, quit your job, then went to church every Sunday for the rest of your life. That's it. My mother was not Berdella, but Mrs. Glenn Johnson. That's the way it was. And if you look back in the church bulletins in the, early, in the 60s and early 70s, the women who were listed in the women's Bible study were not them, but Mrs. Somebody Else. Their identity was quite literally not their own. Women went from being somebody's daughter to being somebody's wife. Women were stripped of an identity that they never had. And those who weren't Mrs. Somebody Else were Miss Nobody. Imagine what that must have felt like. Your whole identity was what you weren't. Mrs. Nobody Wants to Marry Me. And in a small town where everybody knows everybody else, every day, when you left your house, you put on your nobody wants to marry me hat and you went about your business as a secretary, school teacher, clerk, or office worker. I mention this because that was the petri dish from which I came and where, where my parents still lived. That's where Mr. and Mrs. Glenn Johnson still lived. They lived there physically and there lived within them, and parts of there also lived within me. Now, back in 1987, she and I decided to move in together, and I thought I'd be open and honest with my parents. I told them I was moving in with her. I tried to explain that I was tired of being happy, then not happy, then pushing people away, I was tired of repeating the whole thing over and over and over again. And I tried to explain that maybe this was a way of getting out of the loop.
but it was a mistake to have asked them to understand. I was wrong to expect them to disavow an important part of who they were, of where they lived, and the where that lived in them. It's 1988 now, and her smell is still lingering in the air in our, in our apartment. I came home, and she wasn't there. Now, two years later, she would send me an invitation to her wedding, and I'm not quite sure why she sent it. She wasn't trying to be mean or vindictive. That wasn't who she was or how she was. And I went, and I'm not quite sure why but I wanted her to be happy. I really did. And she looked pale in her white wedding dress. Perhaps it was the stress of the wedding or trying to lose weight to look good for the pictures, but she looked like she was wearing a death shroud. And at that moment, I could see her laying in the white silk interior of a coffin and my emotions crept up on me. I wasn't expecting them. And I tried to look down so nobody could see my eyes. I was at a wedding and I was weeping uncontrollably. Finally, mercifully, the organ lady played the last strands softly and stopped. And I walked out of the church hiding my eyes, thinking at last I had my ending or so I thought. Fast forward, four years later, 1992, I was doing graduate work at the University of Minnesota, and I ran into her. She was there taking a graduate class. We had dinner a couple of times, and we talked, and we met. She had divorced her husband. It turned out he hit her. Now this is usually the part of the movie where the guy realizes what a complete fool he's been and they decide to give it another try and the ending credits roll as they walk through the park holding hands. But apparently I was in a different movie. I hadn't learned the lesson yet. And just like in the movie Groundhog Day, I was destined to repeat the lesson over and over and over until I learned it. During this time, around 1992, I shared the first part of the story with her. She teared up and asked if she could keep a copy. I had hurt her badly when I pushed her away in 1988. I remember she cried and hugged me when she put the last of her things in her car and moved out, and I could see the soul of her when she cried. The story I shared with her helped her see that it had hurt me as well. And that helped her. She didn't know that I had cried the next day when I went to work. Why would she? And I cried when I went to choir practice without her. And I had to resign my elementary teaching job because I wasn't functioning. And I descended into drink and isolation. She didn't know that. I finished my degree and got a job as a literacy professor at Mankato, Minnesota, 70 miles south of Minneapolis. It was 1996. 
and I went through a couple more happy, not happy, push-her-away cycles, and I made more women cry, and I started to really wonder what was wrong with me. But then I met my wife, Nancy, a lovely, strong woman who I love. And somehow I tricked her into marrying me. <clears throat> and it took us a while to figure things out. And she came to understand that I wasn't trying to be insensitive or hurtful. I just didn't have a clue about certain things. And I eventually came to understand how much I didn't know about so many things. <clears throat> and she helped me learn the lesson. And maybe we learned some lessons together. Maybe that's the whole purpose of relationships. Love is not just a feeling. You don't just sit back and wait for love to wash over you. Love is also something you do. So here's the lesson another way. I used to think relations existed to make me happy. I would get in one, but as soon as I wasn't happy, I'd leave them. I'd enter and exit, enter and exit relationships, all the while wondering why I couldn't find a relationship that made me happy. And I learned far too late in life that relationships exist for me to make the other person happy. And with this understanding, the relationship gives me far more happiness than I could have ever imagined. And I realized that happiness was there all the time in great abundance. And like Dorothy, I had the power all along. <clears throat> now most would think this is where the story ended. Andy finally figured it out. He learned how to love and happiness found him as he found it. Again, different movie. Fast forward 29 years. I was going through one of those periods where the movie projectionist in your head keeps replaying scenes from your past and pointing out how incredibly stupid and insensitive you were. And sometimes you get stuck in a loop and the little man in your head keeps hitting you over the head with his pointer, telling you what a loser you are and how you should feel bad for making other people feel bad. So I looked her up on Facebook. And don't tell me you've never done this. Facebook is a way you can quietly peek in on someone's life to see how they're doing. And I wanted to see how she was doing. And I wanted to apologize for how stupid and insensitive I was way back when. I wanted to say I was sorry. And in the movie, in my head, she'd say that it was okay. She'd tell me that she forgave me long ago, that she'd moved on. She'd say that she hasn't thought about me in years and that she's in a really good place. That's the way my movie preview was playing in my head. I eventually found her and sent her a simple hello greeting and I waited. There was no reply and that certainly wasn't like the person I knew 29 years ago. A couple of months went by and I sent a couple hello messages and still no reply. So I did a little online detective work. She had moved to a community north of Minneapolis and I did some more searching 
and found something in a church bulletin about praying for her. And there was a notice about her brother in probate court getting some of her stuff. And I found little pieces here and there, and the picture filled in. She had died of cancer. She must have been in her late 50s. And I hope she hadn't died alone. I hope there were people around her. I wished I could have visited her one last time to have held her hand and say I was sorry. I would have wanted that. And for some reason, again, I cried. So what's the really big lesson here? The one where I tie it all together, where I point the parallels existing between reading instruction, teaching, and life. And I don't think I have one, but I'll say this. The world doesn't exist to make us happy. If we go around looking for people and things and achievements or conditions to make us happy, we'll never find it. We might placate ourselves for a bit, but we'll never find happiness. Happiness will always be just beyond our reach. We exist to make others happy. And in doing so, we have an abundance of happiness all around us. And love isn't something you feel. It's something you do. It's a verb. And love isn't confined to a single person or a family. Love is. Love isn't transactional. You don't love somebody because somebody does something, and you don't stop loving because somebody does something or doesn't do something. You love. That's it. No expectations. That's the lesson I wish my literacy professor had given me 40 years ago. This is a literacy professor. Dr. Andy Johnson, and this has been the Reading Instruction Show.